right, tonight begins us into the journey where the scripture that we'll be looking at tonight, and that uh, I know you're all used to the in front of you, there's a blue hymnal, and there's a red book of common prayer, but there's this other black book in front of you, that's called the Holy Bible. And if you want to tonight, we are going to be in Mark 11, and we are going to be in verses 1 through 19, if you would just like to have the scripture in front of you. And it's a different translation than what I'll be reading from, but sometimes that's fun to have multiple translations to see what is going on. But tonight I'm going to give, just as we're starting out, a little why we wanted to look. You probably already know the, for the majority, but why we wanted to focus in. We're, we're basically doing Holy Week all across the span of Lent from mostly the perspective of Mark to prepare us for the Holy Week that's coming for us. So we're going to take tonight, we'll have Sunday and Monday of leading into triumphal entry, and then next week, Brian Smith, who is the, the college chaplain at, at the, in Tallahassee at Florida State, will be leading us into Tuesday. So, but we want to give a little why we wanted to focus in on this, as well as a little context into Mark, a little bit of what's leading into this. So, the theme of Mark for the first 10 chapters, which really caught uh, Mark to write his gospel, is the servant heart of Jesus. And how he's so many things that he's doing that are both miraculous as well as compassionate and caring and healing for people. It's the servant heart of our God through Jesus Christ. And then when we come to this chapter 11, which we will really get into through verse 19 tonight, the servant Jesus becomes the suffering servant Jesus. And if, if we were to go back a little bit, chapter 8, which if you, if you want to study this on your own, but chapter 8 is kind of, a, we're one year away from where Jesus would be coming to the events that would lead him to the last week of his life. And chapters 8, 9, and 10 are what Mark writes down that's a full year of life with Jesus and his disciples in preparing them and anyone else he, he came in contact with for the triumphal entry. So I think that's a good kind of contextual thing to know that chapter 8 is about one year removed from the events that would start Holy Week. And chapter 8 is kind of the beginning of a change with Jesus and what is going on with him and the disciples. Jesus has gone, beginning in chapter 8, he's, he's leaving Caesarea Philippi, where the crowds and everything has, he has been doing have been really large. And beginning after the feeding of the 4,000, the crowds begin to dwindle. And he really begins to prepare the disciples and a select few with, hey, some suffering is coming. I'm going to face my cross and then glory will come behind it. And of course, they don't get it right there in the early going. But we see that change as we're heading into chapter 11 that we'll have tonight. The ministry Jesus has been doing and growing his fame across the countryside and all those big crowds have begun to shrink. And as we're about to see in chapter 11, they'll rise again for that triumphal entry, the riding in on the donkey, and then they'll shrink when there's, a, again, where there's only a few of his loved ones left by his side. And that's what, that's the big theme of these crowds coming down as he really begins to focus on the select few that he wants, he's telling them about the cross he has to face and about the suffering that is come, coming with that. As chapter 11, the theme of it on is the suffering servant, and then he'll tell us about his death and his resurrection with, with that tight group. So in, in, in fact, we, we got to make note of this. In fact, any time that the disciples and the other little select few, as he says, in pretty straight up language, but they couldn't, ex it didn't know in that time and place until much later at, at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit would come or Jesus would come back to them and say, hey, here I, here I am after the death. They didn't know what was going on until that moment, but he has been trying and trying with the larger crowds, say, you know, the, the, 
his, as his fame is growing, as he's healing people, he's teaching these challenging and yet life-giving teachings. And that on, the, on the side, as we're going to talk about, he's coming from Bethany and Beth, Bethphage. Is the correct, a, lot of, a lot of people pronounce it Bethphage, but the, if you're over there, it's Bethphage. Um, he's coming from there into Jerusalem, and he is just—he's staying with his good friends, the sisters Martha and Mary, and they and Lazarus is there as well. And the people have heard about this Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And of course, at that point, he's don't tell anybody, don't tell anybody. And yet, how can you keep something like that secret? <laughs> so, so there is that type of thing. It is just showing how he is, his reputation and his name are growing. And, but a lot of the time, the people had been expecting a political revolutionary, the Jewish people, to come and save them from Roman occupation. And as Jesus says, it's going to be a little bit bigger than that, what I do, but they just don't seem to get it for a good while. So as we talked about, Mark covers that last year heading into it in chapters 8, 9, and 10, and kind of finishing off, he really starts upsetting the powers that be, the Pharisees and some of the, some of the other religious sects and religious elite. And he does this t- a teaching in chapter 10 on divorce. And I, I mean, that as far as everything else, they start saying, we need to kill him. We need to eliminate the threat that he has become to the system that is there at this time. So tonight is that crossroads, chapter 11, where the servant Jesus becomes the suffering servant Jesus as we begin to get in touch with his last road uh, in that week of his cross on Sunday and Monday. Now this is little little tidbit for you. There are only four chapters in all of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, count them four chapters that deal with the first 30 years of the life of Jesus. There are 85 chapters that deal with the uh, the three and a half years of his earthly ministry, the last years of his life. Three and a half years, 85 chapters that tell us all about that, and the ministry and the life of Jesus. And then there are the, there's 29 of those 85 chapters that talk about the final week uh, of Jesus. And then half of those 29 really focus in on the last 24 hours as Jesus with Good Friday into Easter. So the big interest of laying out the the chapter discrepancy and the time that's spent on it is these are the big things we're really supposed to hone in on. The coming of the Son of God, the reason he came, the death that he would die, and the resurrection that would follow, and how salvation came for us all through the experience of this last week of his life. Throughout Lent, we are going to take, I, I stole this term from Bethany as I hadn't really heard it before, but I think it's a great little theme in what she does with our youth. We're going to take a deep dive over the next five weeks into the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday of as we head ourselves, as we join Jesus as in his suffering, in the little ways that we do it in our Lenten disciplines, we join Jesus going to the cross, dying with him, and then rising again. That's the whole point for this whole thing, while we'll be taking a deep dive over these Wednesdays of Lent. So as we said, as we're about to read the scripture, um, we are in, as we begin, in the cities of Bethany and Bethphage. And if you've seen, if you've been there, like the 29 or 30 people who are there now, they actually get to see this in proximity. But if you've ever studied the the map of that area, or if you've been on pilgrimage to Israel yourself, the Mount of Olives is right there around Jerusalem. Bethany and Bethphage are on one side, the eastern side of the Mount of Olives. And then Jerusalem is one mile away across the valley, the Kedron Valley. So that's kind of painting a picture of what is setting up for us. And this is where Jesus will ride that donkey, announcing who he is, his real identity. He'll be coming from the slope 
and those small two farming villages. And he'll be coming on the slope of the Mount of Olives across the Kedron Valley and riding into the eastern gate of Jerusalem. And that sets us up beginning in verse 1 of chapter 11. When they were approaching Jerusalem at Beth, Beth, Bethpage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has been ridden. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Just say this, The Lord needs it, and will send it back here immediately. They went away and found a colt tied near a door outside in the street. And they, as they were untying, some of the bystanders said to them, What are you doing? Untying the colt. They told them what Jesus had said, and they allowed them to take it. Then they brought the colt to see Jesus and threw their cloaks on it as he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that, that they had cut in the fields. Then those who went ahead and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessing is the coming king of our ancestor, David. Hosanna in the highest. Then he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So this is Sunday. We hear as verse 11 kind of is a cutting point as far as days go that he, this is the Sunday as he's riding in on the donkey. So we're going to pause the, the text there and kind of unpack what's going on here. And then we'll jump back into verse 12 as we arrive at Monday of that last week. So on that Sunday morning, just recapping a little bit, Jesus sends two of his boys across town. It's like two suburbs of each other, Bethany and Bethphage, but it's almost like going 15 minutes across town. And they're little farming communities, and he instructs them to look for a donkey that is tied to a post on the outskirts of town. And when you enter the city, and it, it'll be a colt that is not ridden, just uh, start taking it. And if somebody asks you, what are you doing? Are you stealing from us? Just say, the Lord needs it. And he'll actually return it a little bit later. But I, I wish, I mean, if you do that to modern day, and if I go over here to the Porsche dealership, <laughs> and I go up and start taking one of those cars out on the lot, and somebody comes out and I say, if, if the Lord has need of it, that they're probably just going to think I'm crazy. There had to be something else larger at work going here. And this would be the day, as you've heard the triumphal entry, this would be the day that Jesus would declare himself to be their king and their promised Messiah. This, is, this, is, this uh, prophecy that's going to come to fulfillment is announcing to them, as Jesus has been saying, don't tell them. Don't tell them who I am and what I'm doing. This is the day that has been planned out to the T for a long time that is just a beautiful part. It is the, this is who I am, and this is why I've come. And it wasn't a new practice. I know as you look back in history, even in our own country, there have been parades. After the victory of war or a political victory, you probably can see in your minds um, the parade of the, of the soldiers coming home and the winning general and all the decoration and the pomp and circumstance. Um, it is nothing new throughout a lot of civilization of uh, human history. There's one that I can, I, as I am waiting and will eventually go to see this very thing that we describe and as we continue to pray for our pilgrims that will see this in the next few days, the actual road and places that these happened. I've been to Rome and I've actually gotten to see it. right outside of the Roman Colosseum, there is a, a big victory gate for Titus as well as the 10th Roman Legion who after they went to destroy in 70 AD, they went to destroy Jerusalem. And it was Titus and that 10th Roman legion that they destroyed the temple. And this caused the Jewish people to flee and spread out and not return back to Jerusalem until 1948. 
I bring that up for two reasons. One being that it's a victory uh, gate that I've seen that has a lot of the etchings and all of that kind of uh, just remembering it and the victory of what that was for Titus and that Roman legion. But as well, what we're going to talk about with Jesus with the destruction of the temple, it comes back into play tonight. So it just signifies the, you know, just one example of many throughout uh, society that, uh, and throughout history that Victory Gate, and especially coming into Jerusalem, they were used to warring kings or warring here uh, generals riding in on the war-decorated steed being pulled by a chariot that's decorated after they've gone out and conquered someone or, or something like that. But as Jesus is riding in on this donkey, it's not exactly what you think would be uh, as pretty easy in most victory parades to see, hey, they're celebrating something. But it's on the surface, at least, the victory of Jesus riding in on a mere donkey is not very noticeable. On the surface level, he's being followed by a bunch of poor peasants and some ragtag fishermen, <laughs> and then a few kids in the street who have a dove that are saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. That's the little group that's following Jesus. Not exactly your big victory parade yet. And while, while that's all going on with that little group following Jesus in, um, the religious elite are standing on the sides, scoffing, saying, who is this? And mocking Jesus as he comes in on his donkey. At first glass, glance, it doesn't look like much of a victory at all. Nothing that would be conquering about it at first glance. But this is the entry of the king of kings that has come to triumph over sin and death. But it would take that rising again to know what the victory was actually for and what it meant that he was coming in. Now, I said we'd be mostly in Mark, but looking at that, that theme of the suffering servant. But Matthew is the gospel. If you are into the old, as his audience in writing the gospel of Matthew was mostly a Jewish audience, he would take a lot of that Old Testament prophecy that, that, that we're about to talk about and quote it a lot to show that this has come to fulfillment. Uh, so if you're interested in that type of thing, Matthew is a great gospel to get into and look for. The whole triumphal entry, as Matthew points out, comes from, from the ninth chapter of Zechariah. When, and it was a uh, regarding the prophecy that was done to fulfill that prophecy in Zechariah 9.9. And that says this, and it is also quoted in Matthew. Behold, or when you hear those words, behold, it means look carefully. Behold that the king is coming to you lowly. He is sitting on a donkey, the foal of a donkey, and here, he, here comes Jesus. If you're looking across the spectrum of time, it is, it is this not-so-subtle prophecy fulfilled that was written in 487 B.C. And this king would finally arrive in 33 A.D. That's what we're talking about, the time that passed between Zechariah 9 and what we have in the triumphal entry. And he didn't come like most conquerors. He wasn't riding a war horse or, or a decorated char chariot. But Jesus arrives, as this prophecy continues to tell us, Jesus arrives as the Prince of Peace sitting on a donkey. At first, not very extraordinary, but on the surface, very ordinary. But let's look again at verse 7. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut in the fields. Then those who went ahead and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna. Now, Hosanna is a Hebrew word which translates save now. As Jesus is riding in, and they believe him to be the political Messiah that would save 
them from the oppression of the Romans. They, are, they know he has been sent by God, as prophecies have said, but they're confused on the actual meaning of it. But that's what they're saying as he's riding in. Save now. Save now. And the timing, look at how the timing is all lining up on itself. The day, the hour, the mode of entry was chosen and prophesied all those years before. And everything set for the big day. As it was the perfect day for the feast of Passover in which the triumphal entry actually happens. Which brings millions of people to pilgrimage to Jerusalem And they happen to be there as word is going across the countryside. There's a great teacher and a healer and a prophet coming. Maybe this is the one we have been hearing about from generation to generation. So there are a lot of people in that regard already there in Jerusalem as Jesus is riding in. Millions already gathered for the festival of Passover. And the singing begins. The people actually, when they have all this anticipation that maybe the Messiah has finally arrived and they were thrilled. But aside from the teachings and warnings that Jesus has shared that he has actually come to lose his life, later he would gain it and then have a kingdom and rule. But as the triumphal entry goes, Jesus has come to give his life away. But the hearts of the people believed he was the Messiah who had come to kick the Romans out. They treat him at first like royalty, and then they throw their clothes on the donkey and on the ground, their tunics and everything they had. And then as we know at Palm Sunday, they're waving those palms, recognizing not the warring general, but the prince of peace. Every eye that was there Jesus was finally announcing himself. This is who I am as the Son of God, and this is why I have come. This is exactly at first glance what that gathered crowd of millions wanted. Just to picture it, singing, laughing, everyone jovial, as this was a natural time for family and friends to be together to practice and celebrate the Feast of Pentecost. Uh, not pen- <laughs> at Passover, got to get those peas right. Um, but this is a, a little, if you've ever seen in the Psalms, Psalm 113 through Psalm 118, these are called the Songs of Ascent. And these five different Psalms were actually, as they would be screaming Hosanna in songs of worship, songs of halal or song, hallelujah or songs of ascent, This is what the crowds were singing. These were normal hymns of praise to God that were sung at Passover. But as the Messiah is riding in, these are the songs that he is hearing as he's riding in on the donkey. Psalms 113 to 118. And these, they're designed to bring you up to a place where God is. That's why they're called the songs of ascent. To bring you to a place where God is. And if you actually go look at those yourself, you'll actually realize some of our hymns that are in our hymnal are taken right out of the heart of that. And so it goes all the way back to Jewish tradition of Passover as well as to Jesus entering on the donkey to these songs. But you can also picture in your head, if there's that many people gathered screaming Hosanna and singing these song, songs of ascent, it is probably uh, the ones that were already planning to take Jesus to the cross, to wipe him out, to take his life, were hearing it as well. And it probably charged them, we got to get rid of this guy. Look at this following. You know Pilate and King Annas and Caiaphas, the high priests, and all these people, they were probably, this is probably setting things in motion as the the welcome that he is arriving to. But as we've already said, there's this example of before this moment happens, Jesus, whenever he does a healing, he's like, don't tell anybody. Or when he raises someone from the dead, don't say a word. And we've already talked about how... How can you keep, when you see something that extraordinary and out of the ordinary, how can you keep that a secret? But Jesus, 
at the triumphal entry is now invited to the place of honor, worship, and he's welcoming it. As he's like, this is my identity. This is what I'm here to do is to face the cross and to rise again after it. Hosanna or save now became the cry for the Messiah. But there's this problem we've been repeating and want to really drive home. It was the calling out, save now, in that time and context, it was the crying out for a political deliverer. And he, as we hear, the tide will change. Those songs of ascent and that happy and jovial will turn to the quote from Luke, he wasn't what they had hoped for. He wasn't that general that they wanted riding in in victory that saying, I will defeat those that have put us under oppression, but we know where the real victory will come. By the end of the week, the crowd will say, we don't want this man to rule over us. We have no king but Caesar. The, the religious elite were even asking that Jesus make the people, before they start saying that, we don't want that man ruling over us, they were saying, stop those songs that they're singing. He, they're worshiping a false god or a false prophet. And then, as Jesus said, even if you silence the people, the rocks and all of creation will sing out on this day. The triumphal entry was a day that was chosen well before it happened. Perfect timing, perfect design, prophesied and fulfilled. And then, kind of as we see, we've seen in our time, as the crowd is turning on Jesus, we've seen examples similar to that in our time. I, biggest thing I can think of is 9-11. Right after 9-11 happened, um, it drove a lot of people who were not already in church to places of worship and to places of prayer. Three weeks, and that's all it was for most places, three weeks after that happened, nationally and across the world, people said something has shaken us to the core and we need to go to seek the peace uh, that, that we can't find on our own. But as things would calm down, and, they, and God didn't present himself in ways that people might think God should in their own minds. Three weeks later, life was back to normal for those that don't find home in a church. It was just that same type of sentiment with the crowd welcoming him in and saying, we think you're one thing. And as he wasn't exactly that one thing, the crowd started to dissipate and turn to we don't want him as our king after all. We have no king but Caesar. People, save now. As we see them and even in our day, when they need it, when they know that they need it, that cry of Hosanna, save us now comes out. But when circumstances change, God doesn't answer the way you want him to. How many of even us sitting in this room might walk away? That's kind of a a theme of the triumphal entry and how we can apply it to our faith life in our culture even today. But if it's no wonder why Jesus stops halfway down the road. I'm borrowing from Luke uh, because the, Luke, Luke 19, starting around verse 41, and I, I love the dichotomy that's here. Why are those crowds and the cheering is still happening? In Luke 19, he says... Jesus is weeping. Tears. The actual Greek word, uh, there's a lot of different ways you can use it, but it's those big, uncontrollable tears as if you have just found out your loved one has died and it's a surprise to you or a child has died. Big, uncontrollable, emotional tears as Jesus is riding in on the donkey to that great celebration and yet he is weeping because in Luke 19 it tells us because you didn't know the time of your visitation. He is weeping. A lot of, a lot of theologians argue uh, different reasons why. Did he know he was going to die and was that why he was crying? But most agree that it was a combination of that. But he knew the old, that he had come to the people and said, I'm your Messiah. And they rejected him. 
and wouldn't have, and he knew what would follow. From age 33 of Jesus dying and rising again to will he will ascend, and then to 70 AD, will Titus will come with the 10th legion and destroy the temple and all of Jerusalem, causing the diaspora, all of the, all of the people of, of Jerusalem to be scattered not to return as a nation and a people till 1948. This is the very servant heart, the suffering servant heart of God, crying for his people, knowing what he had come for, to be their Messiah in a much bigger spiritual way than they were expecting, and his own wouldn't receive him. His tears, he's riding in, and his tears are for the people that he has come to save, for he knows the brokenness, the death, and the destruction that will face their people as that will happen and in many other things after the temple is destroyed. Jesus wept. The world was going to suffer. His people were going to be dispersed, and many of them would actually die as that great brokenness and great sadness the cheering for the people of God versus the weeping heart of the, of the suffering servant is the two big things going on here. As we consider a little bit more of the t- timing um, of Passover, the 10th day of Nisan, the day according to the law in Exodus, that on the day of Passover you took in the lamb without spot or blemish into your family kept it, maybe got a little attached for a week, and then you had to sacrifice it for the sins of many. This would be the normal practice at the Feast of Passover. And there is great parallel to the attachment uh, to, to the, the goat or sheep or whatever it is, the lamb that you would have, and then the sacrifice, the final sacrifice that would come at the end of this week that we are looking at all across Lent. This brings us to verse 11. Then he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Sunday ends with this great celebration, riding in on the donkey. He goes into the temple, looks around, and then realizes, we need to go back to Bethany. We need to get some rest, for Monday is going to bring some big things. So verse 11 ends... Sunday, and verse 12 starts us into Monday of that week. As we recap a little bit contextually, he's staying with Martha, Mary, and Lazarus on the Mount of Olives through Thursday morning. So Monday through Wednesday of Holy Week, uh, this last week of his earthly life, uh, he's going back and forth to Bethany, and then on Thursday, he'll go to the Garden of Gethsemane and get arrested, and we know how it unfolds from there. But the theme of this, this section, the verses 12 through 20, is the response of Jesus to the national refusal, refusal to have him as their Messiah. And I want to, the language that comes here is sometimes hard to hear, and it's, it goes back to that, there's that angry, judgmental God in the Old Testament, and this God of agape, unconditional love in the New Testament. We're going to get some, some of that old, old school language, but it is for a reason. And I brought that part of the heart of the suffering servant up, Jesus weeping for the people he came to save, because this is his answer back to the refusal of, of the nation of, uh, of Israel to accept him, to re- recognize him as their Messiah. And this, this starts with Jesus curses the fig tree. Verse 12, on the following day when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, seeing in the dis- distance a fig tree in leaf. He went to see whether perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season of figs. He said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. He said, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. There in verse 12, 
You see, on the following day, when they were coming from the home of Martha and Mary and Bethany, he was hungry. Now, do you remember that little Luke chapter 10 where Martha and Mary are they're hosting the great party for Jesus and his disciples? And it is, it's Martha saying, tell my sister Mary to get here in the kitchen and help me with, make, make the food for this party for Jesus and the disciples. As it says, when they're coming from that same house and Jesus was hungry, do you think Martha would have actually let Jesus be hungry? Now, she is the ultimate hospitality party thrower. So when it says Jesus is hungry, I don't think it's a physical, he's actually hungry because his hosts or hostesses haven't taken good care of him. I think there's a deeper theological meaning that is starting off this section. What is actually going on here is they're going back to Jerusalem on Monday. Why is Jesus hungry? Well, this is speaking to that larger theme as Israel as a nation. There is a lot of symbolism and there is a lot of kind of theological deep stuff you have to look into here. As you'll hear about fig trees and, and vineyards, it's, this is using metaphor or simile or symbolism to speak of a lack of the nation of Israel following the Lord and their fruitfulness as a nation. And as you hear in the, in, as we read and we'll read a little bit more, Jesus looks for fruit on this fig tree, which is symbolizing the nation of Israel, and did not find any. And in this, it's, they're in the springtime that those figs actually bear fruit, um, but they're not in that time. They're actually, when this is written in March and April, and Jesus finds only leaves but no fruit on the fig tree. And he'll actually curse the tree and says no one will ever eat of it again. And Peter will bring this up again as we'll hear next week in verse 21 on Tuesday. There, this idea of Israel not bearing any fruit in the covenant with God. And this is kind of, as we hear it, you know, we're heading into a time at the first of the week where, of the last week of Jesus' life where the Lord is actually using his power. And what we'll talk about as we close tonight is the mockery that Jesus portrays that the temple has become and overturns all the tables of everything that's being sold there. It looks like Jesus is having a very bad Monday. I mean, he's, he's already, he's upset with the nation of Israel for their refusal to know him as Messiah. And then just the circus that at a place that's supposed to be holy and that that has big significance has well before Christ comes to this week and then will come to full fulfillment as he faces his cross right right there and a little bit up as he goes to to uh, Golgotha um, but is this a time when the Lord is using his power to destroy is a question for us to ask Nick, to, on Sunday, we'll actually hear about his confrontation with Nicodemus, John 3.16 and then 3.17, which says these words, I have not come to condemn the world, but to save it. But then when you look at the events that are going on here, the purposes in which the Lord had intended for the fig tree for the nation of Israel were not happening. So the Lord is bringing a balance of grace and judgment right here in this time. It's a hard thing for us to realize that those two things, judgment and grace and mercy, can all balance themselves out, but that's the challenge we are faced to look really deep into here. This is not, as it, we opened up in verse 12, this is not Jesus throwing a temper tantrum because he's hungry, because they didn't feed him well. This is about the response of the nation of Israel not accepting him as Messiah. And it's because it broke his heart. And this broken heart leads to this judgment, which is actually supposed to be a great love, as we will see as it unfolds over Holy Week. But if you just leave it tonight, um, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday are going to show us a little bit more of how this judgment is actually grace and love. But if you leave it at those words tonight, it's that very old, wow, he didn't come to to conquer or to cast out, but he came to save. But it seems like he's being pretty harsh to the people of Israel. But the, it will come to balance out.
this actually ushers in the church age of grace, which we are still in as well. As it has become in 70 AD, as Titus would destroy the temple, that sacrificial temple system of, I've done wrong, I've got to bring the, the goat or the sheep or the lamb and have it sacrificed and I'm wiped clean until I do something else wrong again, that ended, came to an end in 70 AD, and we have been in this church age of grace ever since. So it's a good thing to take note of. Isaiah 5, 1 through 7 actually says this. Israel is a vineyard or a fig tree example will bring forth fruit. Go on to explain judgment. And then the Pharisees understood this language, the symbolism of these things and what Jesus is talking about. And it was what was backing up the motivation. We got to get rid of this Jesus. He's talking about the downfall of our everything, the very center of our life. But as we know, that that downfall does come. Jesus' heart, as they would refuse him, would, would be tears as he's riding in to know what he's facing and the destruction that will come behind it. But because of Easter, it is everything that is fulfilled and comes back together in the name of God. Most of the time, we've talked about how 70 AD, from that point on until 1948, the people of Jerusalem have been dispersed. And most of, a lot of them lost their lives. And we know for our brothers and sisters in the Jewish faith, the terrible atrocities that they have faced throughout time. And you look at it, but all of the Old Testament prophecies through the life and death of of Jesus and his rising again, Israel comes back to be both Gentile and and Jew together become the children of God. And all the promises that were given to the Jewish people through the cross of Christ and his rising again were fulfilled. And then we are adopted into that as Gentile Christian believers, children of God. That's where the judgment and the grace come together in full force through his resurrection as everything is fulfilled. All of the old covenants were not trumped because of the new covenant. They were all fulfilled and continue to be fulfilled. What a powerful thing to think about. So we go to verse 15. Jesus, to close us out tonight, cleanses, or cleanses the temple. Then they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling and those who were buying in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He was teaching and saying, it is not written. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. But you have made it a den of robbers. And when the chief priests and the scribes heard it, They kept looking for a way to kill him, for they were afraid of him because the whole crowd was spellbound by his teaching. And when evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city, which takes us to Tuesday. So while the temple was standing, now now it's just ruins, and our 29 that are there, well, they'll actually make this trip from Bethany to where the full temple would have been standing. So you got to do a little mental gymnastics, but you're there. But when, and, and I've, I've only seen it on video, but the, as you do that trip and you imagine, and you, of course they can digitally bring in, you know, special effects and computers and all that, what it may have looked like was just a glorious coming in. And Keep in mind that at this point in time, it's the Passover. There's people everywhere. And as you kind of, right before you enter into the gates of the temple, there's a place called the Court of the Gentiles. At that, Gentiles could not set foot in the temple. Only a good God-fearing Jew could. But the Court of the Gentiles was a place you could get to, and the Gentiles and Jews could actually come together and talk and converse Uh, And it was supposed to be a holy meeting place where the Jews could tell the Gentile people about God. 
maybe, maybe not, they wouldn't be full-fledged, uh, but they could share the stories and what they were learning in synagogue, in, in the temple. And that took place in the court of the Gentiles. It was supposed to be a holy meeting place between Jew and Gentile. But as we hear in this time and what we just read, the court had become a religious marketplace where commercial abuse of God's house was running rampant. And actual priests, high priests, as we know the human heart can be corrupted, uh, priests were actually making money off of the temple system. Um, and, and just one of the many ways that this, this court of the Gentiles wasn't being used in the right place. And we hear Jesus say, call it, a, you have made this a den of thieves. Um, as Exodus 20 says, at Passover, every man brings a half of a shekel and bring it to the Lord to maintain the temple. And there was a law, uh, a tax, if you will, over the years um, as Rome would be, you know, the Roman occupation of the area, at one time you could only use the Roman money. You couldn't use the, the Jewish national money anymore. Um, but there came a time where the priests figured out we can make a little extra buck if we say the Roman money is no longer good here and we'll exchange that money for temple money at a higher exchange rate. They were making money off of the already occupied people. Um, and, as, and as it said, it, this is how that corruption kind of, this wasn't every priest. I don't want to cast them all under the bus, but this was going on. And we can, unfortunately, we can still see similar things these days. You had to, as that law in Exodus 20 at Passover, you had to bring a lamb to sacrifice per every 10 people in your family. And it became a picture of bloodshed to save a life, what Jesus had come to do. But as if you were coming from the Galilee region or elsewhere, as many people would come to Jerusalem on pilgrimage, 100 miles, a lot of people figured out, we don't have to bring one of our own lambs. We can just buy one of the ones there uh, since we're coming from so far away. And even if you brought your own, as you got there, the priests would have to inspect it and say, oh my gosh, on the long journey, that's not a perfect lamb anymore. It's got a little dirt or a little blood over here, so we can't use that one. Why don't you want buy one of ours? We have right over here as a, you know, at a higher cost, of course, but do you see, do you see what's, what's happening here? Um, and then the historian Josephus said, in 65 AD, just to let you know about this business of the temple system, 255,000 lambs were slain in Jerusalem at, at Pente the Feast of Pentecost in just that one year. That was, seemed to be the average, 255,000. Another thing that Jesus threatened, the business that was going on with that temple system. And it was managed by the high priest Annas and his son Caiaphas. On Monday, Jesus cleanses the temple. He has had enough. This is that whole, when I, he, his heart is broken for his people that have said, no, you are not our Messiah and you will not be our king. And the place that was supposed to be holy has become this circuit, circus of corrupt marketplace. Jesus cleanses the temple. He can't take it anymore. And this is the second time he has actually done this, where you're selling these things, I won't allow it. He destroyed the little business, uh, and then he compares Israel to the fig tree. This is the heart behind why he is using that language. Jesus, he's not just having that bad day. The Lord is brokenhearted, and he's beginning to make everything right on this Monday of the last week of his earthly life. He had to come to die so that the people may truly live. But what he found as he's preparing to face his cross is the circus that's in that temple or the court of the Gentiles. And Jesus was interested in relationship, but he was also interested in right and holy living. And what he found was not there that day. So you hear as it's closing out, Jesus combines in verse 17 two different prophets, 
Isaiah, in chapter 56 of Isaiah, he says, this is supposed to be a house of prayer for all the nations and for all people. And then in Jeremiah, the seventh chapter, he says, you're living for yourselves and you have become a den of thieves. The two lines that we have from the two prophets, this is a house of prayer. It's supposed to be a house of prayer for all the nations. And here you have made it a den for thieves or a den for robbers. See, God wants to bring life, but he is saying, I know through great bloodshed and suffering, this system is coming for an end, to an end, but this is why I have come. When you feel lost and that destruction happens, look to the rising again, the life that comes on the other side of the death of the temple system and some of them physically losing their lives. When you hear it that way, that language where you can be, what is God doing here? What is Jesus actually saying? You see his heart and you see why we begin and mark into this, the servant heart of God has now become the suffering servant. As we close out Monday and we prepare for Tuesday, next Wednesday. In verse 18 the business of the second temple or interrupted their business for a second time. Verse 19, Jesus and his disciples left the city. And on verse 20, on Tuesday, which we will hear next week, we begin with lessons from the withered fig trees, is where we'll pick up next week in verse 20. A little extra for you um, if you're really into studying. Um, scripture and you're kind of looking for something else to maybe do, we are highlighting Mark all of these Wednesday nights from verse 11 on to the resurrection um, in the last or, or until Good Friday. But if you, the only, for as we're looking at the theme of Monday, Sunday and Monday, the only other place in the Bible we have information and text about what happens on Sunday and Monday is in the Gospel of John. Chapter 12, verses 20 through 50. And that is all the information that we have, which we all pull together to make the Sunday and the Monday of the last life of Jesus. So a little something extra for you if you wanted to uh, do that. So that, that brings us to a close tonight. Next week we have Brian who will take Tuesday and he'll get these, he'll get these, uh, what do you call it, the, uh, to start the teachings of the fig tree. He'll talk about that a little bit. Tuesday is a very busy week in the last life, or day in the last life of Jesus. He has many encounters with a lot of different people, and you can still see how he's trying to love them and tell them, this is who I am and why I've come. But they begin to all turn their backs and say, we don't want you. We, we don't want you. We have exactly one minute until 744. So, anybody have a, a comment or a question as we close out tonight? Good, thank you. A lot to, lot to get into there. Well, all right. As we close out, may the blessing of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit go out with you tonight and be with you through your pilgrimage of this Lenten season. Go in peace to love and to serve the Lord.